Hello there and a very warm welcome to Des's Island Discs. In a hectic world, this is a little oasis of calm and nostalgia from our guests who choose pieces of music that remind them of a particular time or story from their life or career. Now, if you're listening on podcast, we cannot play the music because of copyright laws. But really, this is about stories. So let's hear them. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. Hello there. My name is Des Cahill and today's visitor to the island is a Cork woman who's been to the forefront of the Irish media landscape for several decades, including a role as editor of Image magazine and the Sunday Independent newspaper. It's a pleasure to welcome Anne Harris. And Anne, although you're many years in Dublin, the, the flame of County Cork still burns brightly. I'm out of Cork now twice as long as I was ever in it. But I actually do feel very Cork and I suppose it's because I grew up there. Like everybody has a home place and everybody loves their home place. But if you were to ask in general which Irish people are so most proud of their home place, it's Cork people. Yeah, I find I often say in conversation, well, I'm from Cork. I don't know what it is. Um, I don't go with all this thing about Cork people are special. I mean, that's nonsense. Mm. But they do have some special characteristics. And I do think one of them is that they don't accept their own limitations. They have a great welcome for themselves wherever (laughs) they go. (laughs) And they they don't accept their own limitations. And that's, of course, a plus as well as a minus. I mean, if you think about Frank O'Connor, I don't know if you've ever read An Only Only Child's Autobiography. But one of the things that I always adored about it was he went to the North Mon. He went to a national school, I think, called St. Patrick. He went to the North Mon. But he tried to give himself a second skin, a veneer of an English public schoolboy. And he used to stand up. He would never, what he called, peach on a chum. (laughs) He wouldn't, you know, betray a friend who did something in the schoolyard because he was so busy not recognising his own lim- Cork limitations. He was being an, Engli- an English public schoolboy. He was reading all the Billy Bunter books, obviously, and But whatever. it is the quintessential <laughs> Cork person yeah. who thinks that they are cosmopolitan. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You stayed in college in Cork. I did, yeah. yes. I went to college in Cork. Yeah. I didn't stay there very long, I hasten to add. But I certainly, very, some very formative things happened to me in college. The biggest one being that Sean O'Reilly was one of my teachers. I think, you know, it's often said that universities are supposed to be places of chaos mm. for students. It's where they should be confused. They should be making self-discovery. They should, there should be no limitations. The horizons are infinite. Mm. And Sean O'Reilly was the one teacher I had who lived that He hated conventional thinking. He had a restless spirit. He was rambunctious. He loved anything original and he encouraged it. And for example, even in his own behaviour in the college, if there was a concert in the Ola Max, he he took the piano and he put thumbtacks on all of the keys to create the sound of the harpsichord because he saw that as very much the tradition of the music that he was at that time reinventing, traditional Irish music. And of course, it was very much a part of what he called and I used to tease when was he going to do but yeah. um, he never did the biggest thing he did was you suddenly realised that I mean he'd been to Paris he'd been a jazz musician he had he brought the whole idea of improvisation, the solo, the central skeleton of a tune on which all of the players then 
played variations. Mm. I mean, it's essentially a jazz form, but he brought that form to Irish music as well. It's it's exemplified incredibly in Oria the Segeity. Yeah. And when when I was getting married to Owen Harris in that church in Coulee, he played Tour Dom de Love. Now, I looked for recordings of it, you know, to perhaps use yeah. today, but it did sound incredibly slow and but when he played it that day in that little church he galloped yeah. we galloped up the aisle and galloped back down <laughs> the aisle now you've chosen uh, Manon Aheron yes I've chosen it specifically sung by Sean O'Shea specifically Sean, sung by Sean O'Shea he was uh, a great protege of Oriadas mm. and he had I think he chose him for the energy that was in his voice and Manon Aheron, obviously the connotations are there, but that isn't the reason I chose it. Taban in airing is, is actually the words. Mm-hmm. I, I chose it for the reason of the symbolism of it, yes, but also because Oriada composed the music. It is an incredibly, for somebody who, you know, Rakarik Oriada explains the kind of rumbunctious sort of energy of his music, but this is incredibly feminine and eloquent and a very beautiful piece of music. And I just think it shows the breadth of him and it shows that he understood the feminine, but it also makes every nerve end on my spine tingle when I hear it because it brings me back to um, the the throb of the Cayley House when I used to go to Irish College and the begin the minute the music started, I would get excited. And this rendering of Tauban and Earring or Manona Heron with Sean O'Shea does exactly that. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio One. That's Sean O'Shea with Sean O'Reilly's uh, Tauban and Earring, Manona Heron, the choice of today's guest journalist Dan Harris. Where did you go to Irish College, by the way, in Cork? You used to go to ba- Ballingiri. Yeah. Yes. It was fantastic. I mean, we all grew up in Irish college, by which I mean we probably had our first sexual experimentations yeah. in Irish college. I think nothing changes. It's always been the same. You know. It is decades later. And the other reason why I chose Manona Heron was because when I was in UCC, it was before feminism. It was before women's liberation came to Ireland or indeed the whole women's liberation movement came anywhere in the world. But feminism didn't begin with women's liberation movement. It has been there for a long time. So when I was a student, we wanted to be activists and to be feminists. I was on the Student Representative Council, but we also wanted to be grounded in the reality of where we were. So we formed a society called the Markovich Society to try to make life equitable, Students always want to rectify injustices and things. So we looked around and some of our um, friends and fellow students were black or Asian or ethnic minority suddenly realised that they had incredibly lonely weekends. So what we did, what the function of the Markovich Society then was to be inclusive to, to our fellow students. And so we opened our houses to them at weekends and we'd just have fun. That's all. The whole purpose was just to make them feel welcome. A very old fashioned. So how many would turn up in your house, for instance? Well, you know, my father would be there on a Sunday with the music on, dancing yeah. with women from Africa or indeed maybe half a dozen. Yeah. You know, there weren't yeah. a great many of them. Sure. I do remember that decades later, one of my friends, she was from India, she explained that what she'd never told us at the time was that she felt very much a victim of racism. 
in Cork. It had been very hard. So while she came, while she was our friend and we thought we were, you know, being very inclusive, mm. we weren't touching really the pain that they were feeling. Well, that's still an issue, unfortunately, yes, isn't it? exactly. UCC was like a Victorian institution, incredibly beautiful mm. campus. Yes, and there was a ladies club. We'd meet there. A little group would. It was yeah. a small group, you know. It, it now obviously would seem like a time warp, you know, but it was... It, it, but still being done today. So when I left, it? it lapsed. But several years later, in the 70s, a group of really good women's liberationists came along and they took it up and they Please. made it into a women's liberation thing and then it lapsed again. So everything is of its time. Of course. And and your time in journalism also changed with the decades. I mean, you, you began as a freelance journalist. I did. I suppose this is a bit of the cork thing now and <laughs> not recognising the limitations. Your, your voice changes, your accent changes when you talk about cork. Well, anyway, <laughs> I wasn't long out of my teens and I wasn't long out of cork. I was in Dublin and I decided that I would like to write an article. So at that time, Gen- the Shannon Free Airport Development Company was getting into full swing down in Shannon mm-hmm. and General Electric from America had come over and they were one of the big companies in Shannon Free Airport Development Company. EI they were called, right? And there was a strike going on there for months. The bulk of the strikers were women and so I decided I'm going to go down to Shannon and see if I can write an article on this. So I took a train down. Mm. And I spoke to the picketers and I spoke to the, tr- the shop steward and I spoke to the trade union officials, spoke to the company officials. And I was gathering notebooks, loads of information. And I was thinking, but this, there is no story here. Like, it's, this is very formal. Who will want to read all these? Now, they were great, the women on the strike. And I talked to them about their lives and everything it was wonderful. But I felt there was more to be had. So I wandered around a very paternalistic company and the women lived in sort of hostels down there, Mm. many of them. So I spoke to the company as well. So I wandered down, looked into the places where the women lived, and I saw on the notice boards bonuses for the people who passed the pickets. And there would be dances and everything. And I realised there was a number of women who passed the pickets every day. It was all kind of dawning when suddenly there was a great flurry down there. And the flurry was because... There were buses every day arrived for these women who continued to work in the factory, the ones who didn't join the picket. Breaking the picket, yeah. Yeah, so the buses came to bring them to the factory where they worked and then they were well rewarded for passing the picket. But this particular day, the day that I was there, the buses never arrived. So they were expected to walk to the factory, but they refused. And all the managers appeared and there was a great flurry, got to go to work. And they said no. So they demanded cars to bring them to work. They did. And what I thought was, now here is the story. On these picket lines, you have these union represented women who are honourable and duty bound. And they're just looking for their rights. And if they had it, they would work. And you had these other women who were like sort of princesses who were, they were capricious. They didn't get their buses to drop them to the thing, so they wouldn't go to work. And the management had a rude awakening. They had a far more loyal and good, potentially good workforce if they dealt with mm-hmm. the union. There was the story. So I went back and I went into the Irish press with it and actually they published it the next day. So that was my beginning in journalism. But You see, even though I've been an editor for well over 30 years between Image Magazine Mm. and the Sunday Independent, 
I think I still am very much a freelance journalist at heart. And one of the reasons for that is that a freelance journalist is a loner and a freelance journalist also is primarily a feature writer. You can't really be a news reporter and be a freelance because news moves so fast and by the time you'd have it pitched, it would be out of date. Now, there are freelancers who work specifically to news editors. Mm -hmm. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being a feature writer. And I think that features are incredibly important because they get under the radar. When I used to be commissioning people to do features, I always said, go to the scene of where something is happening. This, this, the stones themselves will tell you a story. And that, that's really why I chose the Bessie Smith, by the way, because ain't going to play no second fiddle. You know, it's very much... It uh, says a lot. It yeah, says yeah, a lot. Yeah. Well, it says more than just about being a freelance. It's Bessie Smith is the great blues singer mm-hmm. and I used to be saturated in Bessie Smith at one time in my life. She was very raunchy and everything, but she's also like a universal mother, do you know. It's all about love, pain and the whole damn thing, but it's also about never putting up with stick from the man. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So ain't going to play second fiddle no more because I'm used to playing the lead. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But it is sort of an anthem for a freelance in a way, I suppose. But the fee- for feature writing, like, for example... People would think feature writing might be the softer end of journalism, but that's not true at all. Like one time where that whole idea of going to the scene and listening to the stones, a story I had once was called A Shadow Over St. Patrick's. And journalists only know things because people tell them things. And this man called John Gallagher, who lived in the Liberties, he contacted me to say, there's something terrible happening in the Liberties. There's St. Patrick's school is there it's one of the oldest schools in Dublin a Protestant school Mm. and the kids going to that school every day are getting attacked people are throwing stones at them other kids Mm. are throwing stones at them and they're hitting them with sticks that have nails in them and he was very distressed he said would I do something about it so I did I took a day and I went down to St. Patrick's was in the cathedral in the park watched the kids on the swings then I went down to interview the kids and I kept wondering, but who was doing this to them? Do you mm. know? Because it, it didn't, there wasn't a lot of it, but I saw one or two. So I decided to go to the other schools there and to see, was there an, an awareness that this was being done to this Protestant mm. school? I spoke to teachers in the in other schools and said, are you aware? Yes, they were aware. Are you doing anything about it? And that's where I came across a bit of ambivalence. And then I discovered that the teacher that I spoke to, who was most aware of it all, was himself a Protestant. And he felt constrained. He felt he couldn't stand out because of his own religion. He was teaching in a school which was probably non-denominational, but he didn't feel that he could stand up for his own. He felt if he stood up to the kids who were doing it, that it would be said, you're just yes, doing it because yeah. you're a yeah. But when I was telling you that it's not soft, a couple of weeks later, I was with my three-year-old daughter in Bewley's when two guys came up to me and they said to me that they read the story about St. Patrick's and I wasn't to do that again. I needn't show my face in there ever again. Remember St. Patrick's, they said, and they went off. They basically sort of threatened to do me harm because of it. As you say, people would, might think it's soft-sided journalism. No, but yeah, feature yeah. writing is not the yeah, soft-sided journalism. That's that's what I think being a journalist is about. Hence the spirit yeah. of... You shouldn't of, be in it if you Smith. expect it not to be. Yeah, the spirit of Bessie Smith. Indeed. Yeah. 
Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. Bessie Smith, I ain't going to play no second fiddle, the choice of today's guest journalist, Anne Harris. So you had many years as an editor, magazine and then national newspaper. Yes. How did you find those years? Well, I loved being an editor. You either are one or you're not. I think you could be many kinds of journalists, you know, and they're all important, you know. But I think editors really do have to be. They're the invisible hand that steers the ship. See, the trouble about editing is you have to sell the product as well. So you have to make it entertaining as well as informative and educational and everything else. So I learned editing from two great people. The first person I learned from was Claire Boylan, who was the editor of Image when I used to write for it. And she would ring me up to discuss an article and she would take all the time in the world she died sadly mm. young and I uh, remember her yeah. yeah and she would take all she was a novelist as mm. well when she was writing her novels she had quite a jammy number going with image which was that she could take a fortnight off every month off so she started to ask me to come in and do it while she was taking yeah. it. and so that's how I ended up really as editor of image but it was the most pleasurable time in my life because You either love magazines or you don't. And a magazine editor looks at the whole world and decides what they're going to treat of on any given week or month. And they also have a choice of the whole world of writers. You see, in a newspaper, you've got your Your staff staff and your freelancers. But in a magazine, there is very few staff. For example, Gabriel Byrne wrote his first uh, short stories in Image. Fintan O'Toole used to write for Image. Anthony Burgess, I'd look and I'd see Anthony Burgess had written something interesting somewhere and I'd say, I'll ring him and get him to write about something that's relevant to Irish women and um, Nulo Fuelon used to write. Everybody, you could get everybody. There were no limits. And the reason is that magazines, if they're to be any good, they have to be always ahead of the posse, always know what's going on under the radar and they have to be timeless as well because they hang around for six months in the doctor's waiting room. So editing a magazine is pure joy. And then I went from there to the Sunday Independent where I learned from another editor. Angus Fanning was the most committed to freedom of speech person I've ever met in my life. It was because he was steeped in newspapers from about the age of four. His family had owned the Midland Tribune. Yeah. Yeah. So he just believed completely in freedom of speech. It used to drive us mad at times in the paper because he would take copy that we might think was not a great idea and he would know if it was well written and it had an opinion and it could back it up he would publish it that was a fantastic education as well because what you learned there was one day i'll just digress for a second i was walking up grafton street and an old friend from the feminist movement days ran up after me and she said you've gone to the sunday independent and i said yes i don't agree with one (laughs) word of what they write and i said but that's great. You know, you're not, you don't have to read, agree with one word that they write. People find it hard to accept other people's opinions. Yeah. They really do. And they think that they're oh, very broad minded and yeah, everything, yeah. but they really <laughs> don't. So you learn that you have to tolerate other people's opinions, that you have the right to offend. In fact, most journalism at some stage offends. Everybody has a family. They mightn't like what you're writing about them. And you have to live with that. So you have to be tough to be a journalist and tough, tougher to be an yeah. editor. And But the Sunday Indo had a lot of 
it's controversial the word provocative provocative yes yeah. yeah well that was yeah. because as it says in the blondie song i'm going to be your number one <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and if you want to be number one, you have to provoke, you know, but you have to entertain as well. For example, one of the things about this pandemic is the Sunday newspapers, I think, have all done very well. People would break out on a Sunday and go and get a Sunday yeah. newspaper. But Sunday newspapers to succeed have to be commercial. And but also people have to feel I used to say that the, the readers were out there and they would be saying, it's noon, it's Sunday, I haven't had apoplexy yet, I'm going to go and buy the Sunday Independent. And then they would get really annoyed and they, I'm never buying it again until next Sunday. But we also tried very hard to give them a laugh. Like, you have to inform, you have to, you know, you have to go out and be objective and inform and report and have good mm. reporters, but you must give them a laugh as well. The lines in the Blondie song are, I'm not the kind of girl who gives up just like that. My three years of editor as editor were difficult. There had been a change in the regime. I think it is fair to say that the people with the controlling interests didn't have a background in newspapers and didn't fully understand that a, the, the, the majority shareholders have to back off, stay hands off and let the people who know mm what's happening. But that was a difficult time and eventually... It was a difficult time. You held your ground. I stood my ground. Mm -hmm. I didn't give up. And that was the thing. Actually, if you want to know what my proudest achievement in in journalism is, I stood my ground and I survived my my time as editor of the Sunday Independent. And that's reflected in Blondie's song. It is. Which will play out. The tide is high. And ours has been lovely talking to you. And by the way, I swim every day in the sea as well. So the tide is high. (laughs) Good for you. And it kept you going. Yes. Thank you. Anne Harris, lovely chatting with you. Thank you very much. We play out Blondie and the tide is high. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1.